You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. September 25th, 1967. 20-year-old David Bowie receives his very first American fan letter. It comes as quite a surprise. His career is hardly flourishing. He'd released his debut album a few months prior in June, but hardly anyone in his native England took any notice. Learning that his music made it all the way to America was like finding out your message in a bottle made it to Antarctica. He's so shocked by the note that he immediately sits down in manager Ken Pitt's office and writes a friendly response to the 14-year-old from New Mexico named Sandra. Dear Sandra, A few moments ago I was handed my very first American fan letter. And it was from you. I was so pleased that I had to sit down and type an immediate reply. I've been waiting for some reaction to the album from American listeners. There were, but they were by professional critics, and they rarely reflect the opinions of the public. In answer to your questions, my real name is David Jones. My birthday is January 8th, and I guess I'm 5'10". There is a fan club here in England, but if things go well in the States, then we'll have one there, I suppose. It's a little early to even think about it. I hope one day to get to America. My manager tells me lots about it, as he's been there many times with other acts he manages. Thank you for being so kind as to write to me, and do please write again and let me know some more about yourself. Yours sincerely, David Bowie. January 27th, 1971. David Bowie takes his first step on U.S. soil. He arrived solo at Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C. There's no crowd to meet him, just a lone PR rep from his record label. Despite the light reception, David is dressed like a star, specifically Lauren Bacall. He regally sashayed off the plane, long locks spilling past his shoulders in soft golden tendrils. He's wearing a dress. Technically, it was a blue maxi coat crafted by au courant London designer Michael Fish topped off with a white chiffon scarf, but these finer points were lost on the American immigration officials. To them, it was just a strange man in a dress, which is always grounds for suspicion. They detained this soft-spoken, exceedingly polite cross-dresser for more than an hour, interrogating him about his attire and fey mannerisms. Finding nothing technically illegal, they let him go, muttering various homophobic slurs as he went. David's PR contact greets him warmly before asking about the lengthy delay. Oh, they held me on the plane, David replied. For some reason, they seemed to think I looked strange. David Bowie was certainly ready for America, but was it ready for him? Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life, 
or should I say lives, of David Bowie. In this episode, we're going to talk about Bowie at the dawn of the 70s, shedding his hippie skin for something a little rougher and more raw. The new decade saw him become the godfather of glam, but also a father and a husband. More than any other, it was an era of changes for David Bowie. David Bowie needed a new pad in the summer of 1969. He and his girlfriend Angie had worn out their welcome staying with David's increasingly fed-up ex-girlfriend, Mary. The final straw came when Angie attempted to seduce Mary, who'd never signed up for a menage a trois. So they were out. Aggressive Angie sought a new home, and soon she found the perfect place just a short distance away in the town of Beckenham. If Elvis Presley had Graceland, David Bowie, with whom he shared a birthday, had Haddon Hall. The imposing 30-room Victorian mansion had lost some of its grandeur since being converted into suburban apartments, but the air of faded glamour only added to the distinctly funky vibe. The red brick turrets and wrought iron weather vanes loomed over a rambling English garden choked with weeds and barren trees. It looked for all the world like a haunted house, and with good reason. Bowie and many of his housemates claimed they saw the ghost of a young woman strolling the property. Their ground-floor apartment, theirs for just seven pounds a week, included access to the cavernous formal entrance hall, featuring a massive staircase illuminated by a 40-foot stained-glass window. Some friends called the Gothic pile Beckenham Palace. Others called it Dracula's Living Room. Both descriptions are apt. Outrageous and ostentatious, Haddon Hall was the ideal place for David and Angie to live out the eventful years ahead. At first, they couldn't afford much in the way of decoration, furnishing the flat with some old orange crates stolen from a local market. But with some help from Angie's parents, the young couple began to add their own touches. They painted the walls and ceilings vibrant shades of green, pink, and silver. David took a more personal approach in the bathroom, where he pasted handmade collages of nude women cut from men's magazines. Once David's space oddity royalty started to roll in, the pair began frequenting local antique shops, acquiring elegant Art Deco lamps and a huge seven-foot-wide Regency bed. After doing up their living quarters, David began building a workspace. He converted a small cupboard under the stairwell into a makeshift rehearsal studio with rudimentary recording equipment. There, he'd demo many of his best-known songs over the next three years, often with the help of his friend and producer, Tony Visconti, who was so taken with the place that he rented the flat next door. Haddon Hall became the center of gravity for David and his entourage, serving as a home, an office, and a creative incubator. This was where music was made, Photo shoots were held, costumes were sewed, journalists were wined and dined, and grand plans were conceived. David was in low spirits as summer turned to fall. The single Space Oddity had been his first bona fide success on the charts earlier that year, but the accompanying LP did dismal numbers, selling barely 5,000 copies in the UK. The public who'd known him for the dramatic sci-fi operetta were confused by the meandering folk of unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed and the dystopian proto-prog rock of Signet Committee. And then there was the full-on psych freakout that concluded Memory of a Free Festival. If he sounded lost and unfocused, it's because he was. David hoped at least for critical acclaim, yet that too eluded him. This was mostly due to a major managerial oversight. In November 1969, David staged a showcase to promote his album, rather loftily dubbed An Evening with David Bowie. David rose to the occasion, delivering one of his finest and most passionate performances to date. But when he arrived backstage after his triumphant set to charm the VIPs, he was told there were none. Though great efforts had been made to invite friends and label reps, they had completely forgotten to invite members of the press. David's friend, Calvin Mark Lee, the man who'd introduced him to Angie and gotten him his record deal in the first place, took the heat for the snafu. He was duly banned from David's circle. Still, the damage was done. David felt like Major Tom, drifting further into the commercial abyss. I was in the depths of despair, he later said. I became disillusioned. I used to have periods, weeks on end, when I just couldn't cope anymore. I'd slump into myself. I felt so depressed. I really felt so aimless, and this torrential feeling of, what's it all for, anyway? Angie did what she could to lift him out of his funk. She played an increasingly active part in his career, falling somewhere between an artistic collaborator and manager, much to his actual manager, Ken Pitt's chagrin. 
Ken viewed her as an opportunistic egomaniac, leeching onto his talented client and disrupting his meticulously crafted promotional strategy with ill-advised stunts. Angie viewed Ken as, in her own words, a deadweight albatross, one whose hopelessly out-of-touch supper club tactics weren't doing her avant-garde boyfriend any favors. They were both right and wrong. The degree to which Angie shaped Bowie's music and personas has been exaggerated over the years, usually by Angie herself. But her role as an organizer and hustler is undeniable. In many ways, she inherited the advisor role formerly held by David's father, John, a one-time PR executive who died of pneumonia in August 1969. David trusted his father more than anyone and valued his creative instincts and expertise. Now Angie, this big-dreaming, big-talking American with little formal training, became his most vital-sounding board. In addition to helping him land small gigs at local clubs, she steered David down daring and sometimes outlandish creative avenues. They were partners, though some might say codependent ones. It was difficult to see where David ended and Angie began, and vice versa. That wasn't the only blurry line in their relationship. Gender roles and sexual identities were exchanged at will. Angie encouraged David to grow out his hippie perm into long, feminine waves, while she opted for a short crew cut. She regularly bought women's clothing that she knew David would like. Sure enough, he would raid her closet and borrow one of her Mr. Fish gowns. They were quite a sight walking down Beckenham High Street. He freshly made up in a dress, and she with her close crop and pinstriped power suit. In the literal and metaphorical sense, Angie wore the pants in the relationship. She was prone to throwing tantrums, designed to manipulate, confuse, and sometimes even seduce. They'd come on fast and sudden. David once said living with Angie was like living with a blowtorch. Many would find themselves burned. It was Angie's idea to install a phone line at Haddon Hall, the better to handle David's business. Unfortunately, the line was often jammed with pitiful calls from David's mother, Peggy. Though she'd been a cold and remote figure all throughout David's childhood, Peggy had grown increasingly needy since the death of David's father. This added to the tension between mother and son that had been brewing for years. Peggy's constant accusations that the couple were living in sin took their toll on Angie, who finally fled to her parents' home on the Mediterranean island of Cyprus that November. David had been so preoccupied with his own affairs, business and otherwise, that she doubted he'd even notice her departure. Much like his mother, he always demurred when it came to outward displays of affection. He couldn't even bring himself to say the words, I love you, preferring instead to whisper his own code phrase, in your ear. So imagine her surprise when she received a postcard from David just before Christmas that read, This year I promise we'll marry. This was all so romantic and unlike David. Angie returned to Haddon Hall soon after. David had posed a question early on in their relationship. Could she deal with the fact that he didn't love her? He warned Angie not to expect anything that even slightly resembled traditional monogamy. I'm not made like that. I do things that other people might not subscribe to. I think it's only fair that you should know that before we set out. This suited Angie just fine. She was no stranger to deviating from the sexual norm. She had, after all, been expelled from school for having an affair with a female student. Hadn't she and David first met because they were both sleeping with the same man? Clearly, their relationship was wide open from the start. And that's how it continued to be. Angie had no problem sharing David. At first, anyway. Boys, girls, didn't matter. If Angie could get in on it, even better. That was the ethos of the age. If it feels good, do it. As long as it's not hurting anybody. They even had threesomes with David's old girlfriend, Dana Galepsi who described them as less like boyfriend and girlfriend and more like brother and sister, and sometimes mother and son. For such a renegade, Angie took a surprisingly old-fashioned stance on housework, cooking and cleaning for David, and even drawing his bath. Sometimes he called her mother, ma, and even Peg. Angie would never fully shake the sense that David stayed with her purely for practical reasons. She was an all-in-one secretary, PR rep, manager, creative partner, maid, and lover who had the added bonus of finding him additional sex partners. Though they were obviously compatible, immigration issues played a key role in their decision to tie the knot. Angie's visa was due to expire, and marriage would prevent her from being deported. David's no fool, she claimed. We got married because I was an American who needed to stay in London, and he was a weak Brit who needed me to help break down doors and turn him into a star. 
I was wild, and he needed me to help him be wild. It worked. Bowie himself would admit that they probably wouldn't have gotten married if it wasn't for her visa problems, yet that didn't mean he didn't care. While the marriage ceremony never mattered much to him, Angie resolutely did. They married at the Bromley Register Office in March 1970. The bride wore a pink and purple silk dress from the 1920s, purchased the day before from one of the vintage stalls at Kensington Market. The groom wore an oversized shearling afghan and an ascot. Instead of rings, they exchanged two Peruvian silver bracelets. They'd said farewell to singledom the night before by staging an impromptu threesome with a female artist friend. As a result, they got a late start that morning and nearly missed their own wedding. The trio arrived at the registry office only to find David's mother Peggy waiting on the steps. This was unexpected as David hadn't invited her. There were only a handful of friends on hand to watch the couple take their vows. Manager Ken Pitt, the man who'd been as much of a father to David over the last few years as his own dad, wasn't among them. David hadn't invited him either. Angie had already supplanted him as David's ultimate confidant. Now it was official before God and law. The newlyweds posed for photos outside the registry office before heading to a nearby pub for a quick reception. It was raining, so they honeymooned at Haddon Hall in front of the TV set. The couple used their marital bed for their first ever fivesome that night, bringing the day to an eventful end. Married life clearly didn't slow them down. Shortly after their wedding, David introduced Angie to a friend by merrily proclaiming, This is my wife. She gets boys for me, and I get girls for her. And we're all very happy. You'll notice David's music hasn't received much attention thus far. Between the death of his father, the move to Haddon Hall, and the promotional responsibilities for the Space Oddity album, David didn't have much time to write during the tail end of 1969. One of the only songs he completed in this period was called The Prettiest Star. He'd written it for Angie while she was away in Cyprus and played it to her through the phone as part of his proposal. Recorded on January 8, 1970, his 23rd birthday, it was the first song he released in the 70s, the decade he'd grow to dominate. You and I will rise up all the way, he sang on the track. Though The Prettiest Star sold a dismal 800 copies, he'd make good on the lyrical promise. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. 
Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. An explosion of glam rock shook the English music scene in the early 70s, and it was David Bowie who lit the fuse. The Big Bang occurred on February 22, 1970 at London's Roundhouse Theatre, where David was playing with his new band, Hype. The other acts on the bill epitomized the earthy, rootsy, back-to-the-land hippie sensibility that permeated the rockscape as the 60s drew to a close. It was all about being real, man. Jeans and buckskin were the official musician uniform. Performers were indistinguishable from their audience. Nobody was a star. They were just on stage, doing their thing. This egalitarian ideal was shattered when David and his fellow hype men appeared on stage, dressed as literal superheroes. Bowie took center stage as Rainbow Man, decked out in multicolored spandex, thigh-high boots, and a flashy silver jacket. Tony Visconti handled bass duties dressed in a white leotard, silver crocheted briefs, and a green cape. A gold-suited gangster and a cartoonishly gaudy cowboy completed the unusual lineup. Homemade costumes, sewed with love if not tremendous skill by Angie, went a long way in separating David the sci-fi folky of space oddity from his latest guise as a rock and roll frontman. But more than just putting his past behind him, the sensationalist personas were a stand against the snoozy status quo. David had spent the 60s spotting trends and chasing them. Now he was determined to subvert them. Hype was an exercise in rebellion, pure and simple. You want a self-serious poet? Well, get a load of us. We're superheroes. All in good fun, of course. Hype weren't the first band to bring a touch of theatricality in the rock and roll. Groups like Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and Paul Revere and the Raiders had incorporated elaborate period costumes into their acts back in the early 60s. Self-styled horror rockers Screaming Lord Such went even further, opening each show by emerging from an oversized coffin and toying with props, skulls, and daggers. And then there was Arthur Brown, who kicked off performances of his 1968 hit Fire by setting his headdress ablaze. Androgyny also seemed to be embedded in Rock's DNA, stretching back to the thick lashings of mascara worn by David's hero, Little Richard. The Beatles' long hair garnered an untold number of column inches, and even the rebellious Rolling Stones donned drag on the sleeve for their 1966 single, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows? Such camp was generally viewed as a gimmick, meant to mask lack of talent, lack of sex appeal, or some combination of the two. To engage in such silliness while retaining artistic credibility, now that was the new frontier. With hype, David sought to present obvious artifice with a straight face, performed so skillfully that you can't help but be impressed. That attitude became the spirit of glam rock. Even the band's name was a Warholian nod to the thin veneer of glitz that separated mere human beings from stars. Hype was almost provocatively on the nose, an overt admission of phoniness that absolved David of so many show business sins. I deliberately chose the name, he would say, because now no one could say they were being conned. He could be plastic. He could be disposable. He could be anyone he wanted. Although in the short term, he didn't want to be Rainbow Man. Hype disintegrated a short time after that day at the Roundhouse. The band endured vicious homophobic heckles from the crowd, but there was at least one person who enjoyed their set. It was Mark Bolin, David's friend and sometimes frenemy. Their rivalry stretched back to the R&B boom of the mid-60s, and Mark was definitely winning the fame race. He'd earned middling success with his band Tyrannosaurus Rex. Within months of David's roundhouse show, Mark had given himself a glam makeover launching himself to the top of the pop heap in the UK, rivaling even the Beatles for mass adoration, and selling 100,000 copies of his single in one day. He became the public face of glam rock, which pissed David off to no end, leading to one of the many tiffs between the pair. Tellingly, Mark would later deny that he ever attended David's roundhouse gig. Whether he simply forgot, or had a guilty conscience, is up for debate. 
In addition to kickstarting the glam rock revolution, the Roundhouse show is notable for another reason. It marked the first time David ever shared a stage with his new guitarist, Mick Ronson. Just weeks earlier, Ronson was working as a gardener in his hometown of Hull, England. Not the best use of his formidable musical talents. Ronson was a classically trained pianist who also took up violin, cello, and finally guitar as a boy. As a teen, Ronson idolized Jeff Beck and moved to London in the mid-60s to try his hand as a blues player. But he was quickly reduced to living on tins of beans and returned to Hull a short time later with his tail between his legs. Ronson's route to Bowie is windy, filled with several fortuitous connections. Bowie had begun playing with Ronson's former bandmate, drummer John Cambridge. When a heavy-duty guitarist was required for Bowie's hype project, Cambridge was sent up to Hull to recruit Ronson. They found him working for the Hull City Council, painting lines for a rugby field, convinced his musical career was over. Ronson was persuaded to call on David and Angie at Haddon Hall, where they jammed into the early morning hours. David invited him to play on an upcoming BBC radio session two days later, on February 5th, 1970. Ronson's high-octane guitar lines added extra muscle to David's music, making the songs rougher, rawer, and sexier. David was entranced, describing Ronson as Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimi Hendrix all rolled into one person. In Rono, as he was forever known, David had found his secret weapon and his musical soul brother the first true partner he'd ever had. Soon, Ronson moved into Haddon Hall, where he, Bowie, and Tony Visconti worked in their makeshift studio, the old wine cellar under the stairwell. The homemade soundproofing made from egg crates did little to muffle the noise, making them less than popular with their neighbors. A new album began to coalesce, inspired by the creative spirit of the Beatles at their most daring. They wanted to craft a studio production with sounds that could only exist on tape. It was to be David's personal Sgt. Pepper, his pet sounds, his magnum opus. But the result, called The Man Who Sold the World, didn't quite turn out like that. David's mood had plummeted by the time he and his Hatton Hall cohorts convened in the studio in April of 1970. The small amount of buzz that Space Oddity afforded him had died down, and his follow-up, the prettiest star had flopped. The band itself was an upheaval as Ronson engineered the arrival of a new drummer, Mick Woodmansey, known to all as Woody. They all camped at Haddon Hall, bringing their financial fears and other anxieties literally to David's door. Everyone was broke, and this album was make or break. For the first time, the hyper-ambitious David began to shrink from the challenge. In Visconti's words, this man would just knock it out of bed and write a song. The producers spent much of the sessions trying to retrieve David from the studio hallway, where he and Angie could be found holding hands and cooing at one another. With David indisposed, Visconti and Ronson played an oversized role in shaping the sound of the record. Ronson, the young buck guitarist, was eager to emulate his heroes Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton with his cranked-up Les Paul and towering stack of Marshall amps. As a result, many of the songs were significantly louder and harder than anything that bore Bowie's name to date, forged from the same fire that would yield heavy metal. Beatles were dead. Long live Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. She Shook Me Cold bears more than a passing similarity to Beck's cover of Muddy Waters' You Shook Me. Black Country Rock is an overt homage to T-Rex and the quavering vocal stylings of David's frenemy Mark Bolin. The width of a circle is an eight-minute tour de force, with Ronson's guitar pyrotechnics as the main event. Many of these instrumentals were assembled by Visconti and Ronson, who all but begged their nominal leader David to put pen to paper and write lyrics. Visconti was not a fan of David's new writing process, defined as, I can't be bothered until I have to. David's procrastination was so extreme that he was still recording vocals on the last day of album mixing writing lyrics in the studio lobby while Visconti and Ronson waited impatiently at the mixing desk. When David finally did decide to write, the words were often dark, unsettled, and deeply disturbing. The record company had given him a shoestring budget, necessitating weekend sessions done on the graveyard shift. This darkness permeated his output. David would remember the sessions for the man who sold the world as, quote, a nightmare, and characterized the record as the most drug-oriented album I've ever made. 
Few in this period recalled David as lost in any sort of drug haze, but it was clear that he was engulfed by some form of black cloud. In the last year, he'd lost his father and slipped away from his manager and mentor, Ken Pitt. The utopian hippie dream of the arts lab had crumbled to nothing, and his first taste of fame had turned sour. In what would become something of a theme, David acted out his personal traumas through science fiction tales. Violence, alienation, confusion, and madness are recurring themes throughout the songs, obvious indicators of his haunted and paranoid state. The width of a circle describes a sexual encounter in the depths of hell, though it's unclear whether the figure is God or the devil. After all, features a nod to famed Satanist Aleister Crowley. The Superman is an apocalyptic Nietzschean tale, and Running Gun Blues alluded to the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, told from the point of view of an unhinged veteran. The most potent track was All the Mad Men, one of the first songs recorded for the sessions. It's rooted in David's own personal nightmare, the mental deterioration of his elder half-brother, Terry. David had worshipped Terry as a young boy, looking to him as the sole source of emotional warmth in their otherwise frigid family home. Later, as a teen, it was Terry who turned David on to free jazz and beat poetry, which became crucial pillars of his creative identity. Terry encouraged his individuality, fostering David's unrivaled single-mindedness. Most importantly, they cared for one another. It was the only uncomplicatedly loving relationship in young David's life. But then Terry's moods became more erratic, leading to terrifying hallucinations, lengthy disappearances, and horrific breakdowns. Schizophrenia had ripped Terry's reality to shreds, just as it had done to so many in David's family. By the late 60s, Terry was living at Cane Hill Hospital, the notorious Gothic asylum south of London, where patients were once confined to padded rooms, doused with ice water, and brutalized with an arcane form of electroshock therapy. Terry endured slightly less abuse during his stay, but life behind the imposing gates was undoubtedly disconcerting and tinged with fear. Because Terry was a voluntary patient, he could come and go as he pleased. Often, he'd visit David, crashing at Haddon Hall for sometimes weeks on end. Terry had responded well to his treatment, and like many patients on the men, decided he didn't need to take his medication anymore. This wrought havoc on his neurochemistry. David usually tried to keep things light, steering the conversation to topical things like soccer. But while they shared the same roof, they rarely shared the same reality. Whenever Terry would leave Haddon Hall, David was flooded with relief followed by an immense wave of guilt. Why couldn't he help his brother? Why had this happened to Terry? It could have just as easily happened to him. Could it still? David lived in constant fear of the madness that he felt coursing through his veins. He could feel it, bubbling up whenever he got drunk or high. His mental stability was fragile. His art was his salvation. Among his first songs to confront this phobia head-on was All the Mad Men, an empathetic look at Terry and the trials he endured. It contained lyrical references to lobotomies, librium, and electroshock therapy. Most poignantly, the refrain quotes Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Terry had given the book to David as a young boy. Now he repurposed Kerouac's words in tribute to his stricken brother. The only people for me are the mad ones, David sings the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles. Terry had encouraged David to embrace his inner madness, that wildfire that burned within. Now Terry was paying the price. David couldn't help but wonder, was he next? He wrestled with this question on the album's title track, the man who sold the world has vexed fans for decades with its dense lyrics that obliquely hint at David's worsening identity crisis. It speaks to the devils and angels inside of him. In the song, the narrator has an encounter with a ghostly doppelganger on a stairwell. Is it a past self? A future self? A potential self that he'd never become? It's unclear. I thought you died alone. A long, long time ago, he says to the figure in the song. Oh no, the double replies. Not me. I never lost control. 
Control was a word that comes up again and again in the life of David Bowie. Control was a necessary part of his survival, the fragile border between reality and madness. David struggled to define himself as a parent in his search for a cover for the man who sold the world. Initially, he'd commissioned a painting by his old Beckenham Arts Lab friend, Mike Weller. The foreboding music inspired Weller to paint an illustration of a rifle-wielding cowboy standing at the entrance of, of all places, Cane Hill Hospital. The choice was pure chance. Weller had no idea of David's connection to the place. The coincidence was not lost on David, who loved the cartoonish, pop-art-style cover design. At first, at least. But soon he changed his mind in favor of an image that would showcase himself in a more domestic environment. A photo shoot duly took place in the living room at Haddon Hall. The final shot is striking, resembling a pre-Raphaelite painting more than a rock album cover. David, surrounded by rich red drapes and his growing assortment of antiques, is seen reclining in an elegant chaise lounge, fingering his long, elegantly styled blonde curls with one hand while casually spilling a deck of playing cards with the other. He provocatively stares down the lens in a cream and blue satin dress. It is, as he would explain numerous times, a man's dress, purchased from cutting-edge designer Michael Fish's Savile Row Boutique. But as David would soon learn on his American arrival, a man's dress is still a dress. To many, his androgynous attire flirted uncomfortably close to drag, and not the campy, silly, acceptable kind of drag, which had long been a staple of British comedy. Transvestites were fine if they were there to be laughed at, after all. But Bowie demanded respect. He was used to challenging gender norms. Back in the mid-60s, his shockingly long mop-top hair got him threatened and spat at. This cover image took it even further, daring or even welcoming outrage. Leave it to David Bowie to court controversy just by lounging in his living room. As with the rest of his albums to date, The Man Who Sold the World Failed to Sell. Relations between David and Tony Visconti grew strained during the difficult sessions, and it would be years before the pair would work together again. But the troubled recording saw David split more permanently from another intimate, his manager, Ken Pitt. Their four-year relationship had been monumental but hard to define. Ken guided David's career with class and skill. At times, he also did David's laundry. The elder man had been like a surrogate father to David, welcoming him into his elegant London flat after David moved out of his family home for the first time. Like any good show business figure, he introduced David to entertainment luminaries and industry titans. He also introduced David to classic literature, fine art, and the theater. There was indeed a lot of love between the men, though Ken's intentions seemed more amorous than David's. It's not quite fair to add lover to the lengthy list of words that apply to their relationship, but there was an intensity that transcended the usual manager-client bond. Angie clocked this from the start. To her, Ken was enemy number one. He was the only other person David listened to. She didn't need the competition and was eager to get him out of the picture. Angie regarded Ken as a show business dinosaur, a holdover from the old school style of management. Ken would take the heat for David's stalled career, as many over the years accused him of trying to steer his uniquely talented client down the stodgy supper club and cabaret route. This is both unfair and untrue. Ken may have been lost amid the hippy-dippy world of mimes and arts labs, but he believed in David's more avant-garde work, even financing sessions for space oddity out of his own pocket when David was without a label. In the end, Ken's extensive experience was his undoing. He was used to doing business the way it had always been done. David had no interest in doing anything the way it had always been done. As time went on, David grew emboldened by the achievements that Ken had a major role in engineering. He became stubborn and contrarian, disregarding Ken's well-considered advice. He complained to friends that he was drowning with Ken, who he no longer related to creatively. During sessions for the man who sold the world, David decided that he'd had enough. He tearfully sought advice from the head of his record label, telling him that he wanted out of his management deal. The label chief didn't want to get involved. Breaking such contracts was seen as ungentlemanly and also a conflict of interest but he recommended a legal firm who could do the dirty work for him. So on April 27th, 1970, 
David sent Ken a letter informing him that their professional relationship was over. The following week, David arrived at the apartment they used to share for what amounted to a farewell meeting. David's counsel, a bullish litigation clerk named Tony DeFreeze, did most of the talking. David himself sat quietly on the chaise lounge, looking frail and deeply sad. Pitt was equally devastated, not to mention shocked. But ever the gentleman, he refused to stand in David's way and agreed to step aside. When the meeting was over and the dust settled, they shook hands. David offered a simple, if sad, thank you, Ken. Then he disappeared down the street with DeFreeze. Ken Pitt earned 15,000 pounds from the split, but his role in his client's development is incalculable. David maintained a warmth for Ken as the years went by, sending him rare books for his formidable collection. In 1973, during the height of the Ziggy Stardust craze, he invited Ken to one of his gigs with a note that read, Come and see what your boy's doing. Now without a manager, David looked to Tony DeFreeze for career guidance. He'd been won over by DeFreeze's magical ability to extract him from contracts with just the wave of his pen. David initially wanted him only to handle his finances, but DeFreeze had his sights set on something bigger. He believed David Bowie could be the biggest rock act in the world, and he was just the guy to help him do it. David obviously appreciated the sentiment. DeFreeze's drive matched his own sizable ambition, and together the pair hashed a plan for world domination. In many ways, they were similar, captivating, charismatic, and gregarious in public, Behind closed doors, they were calm, focused, and very shrewd. Though barely three years older than David, Tony spoke with a measured tone that led you to believe that all was well and your life was about to get better. For David, this was indeed true. All of DeFree's gambles would pay off handsomely, in the short term at least. Tony's fast and loose management style and ethically questionable financial dealings would sow the seeds for much of the insanity that would plague Bowie's professional life in the years to come. Angie Bowie would describe Tony DeFreeze as a thief and a gangster, but if he wants something done, who do you hire? In 1970, David hired Tony DeFreeze to make him a star. And he would. But first, David had to go to America. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. David Bowie had dreamed of going to America since he was a little boy, but the fantasy never included a full body search. That was the welcome he received after touching down at Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C., America in 1971 could be an uptight place, and immigration officials weren't accustomed to men arriving on their shores dressed in women's clothing. Eventually, David was released to the care of Ron Oberman, a publicist at his label, Mercury Records. The purpose of the trip was to try to up the abysmal sales figures for the man who sold the world, which had moved only a thousand copies in the month since its release. The label hoped that an in-person visit would convey the singular magnetism of their unusual artist, and America would fall under the spell of Bowie mania. Things didn't quite work out like that. A paperwork snafu with the American Musicians Union meant he was barred from performing. David's visit was restricted to interviews and general glad-handing with local DJs across the country. The first interview David gave was to Ron Oberman's brother, Michael, in the living room of their parents' all-American ranch house in Silver Springs, Maryland. A photograph preserved the surreal moment. It looks like a bizarre TV special. Bowie meets the Bradys. Wearing pink crushed velvet pants and a mauve turtleneck, he sits on an avocado green couch. In front of him is a TV tray, perfect for eating a frozen dinner while catching an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. David had wanted to see the real America, Just hours after arriving on U.S. soil, he'd found it. When the interview was complete, the Oberman's middle-aged parents treated everyone to dinner at a local steakhouse. The other diners were so freaked out by David's long hair and loud attire that a waitress stuck them in the back room and closed the curtain on their booth. After the meal, the Oberman brothers took David to Michael's Pad, where some friends from a local rock group had come to hang out. David's first night in the U.S. marked another first, the first time he ever saw a bong. America, man. Far out. From D.C., David headed north to New York, where Mercury booked him into the Holiday Inn at Times Square, the urban epicenter of sleaze and smut, where the porn theater marquees glow just as bright as the grotesquely oversized billboards. Times Square in the 70s was a shimmering sea of peep shows, sex shops, and nudie mag stalls, and their contents spilled out into the dirty street. The cold January air was thick with car exhaust, subway steam, and trash. David warded off the winter chill with a French beret, cuffed boots, and a huge fur coat, drawing stares from the hawkers and the hookers. David stared right back. He couldn't get enough. I couldn't believe the country could be so free, so intoxicating, and so dangerous, he remembered. It was filthy, but it was fun, like a Velvet Underground song come to life. It inspired David to take a trip downtown and see the Velvets in the flesh at the Electric Circus on St. Mark's. For years, they'd been David's favorite American band, and the experience of watching them perform new songs like Sweet Jane at close range left him mesmerized. After the show was over, an uncharacteristically starstruck David talked his way backstage and cornered the man he thought was Lou Reed. He spoke breathlessly about what Reed's work had meant to him, and let it slip that he used to cover Waiting for the Man himself. It was only later that Bowie realized that Lou Reed had left the Velvet Underground several months earlier, and the man he'd gushed to had been a new member, Doug Yule. Rather than being heartbroken, David found the humor in the situation. An idea started to coalesce in his mind. Maybe he could also impersonate someone on stage. Not an actual living, breathing, famous person, but someone else entirely. A character of his own creation. He mulled the idea over as he strolled Manhattan, shamelessly playing the tourist. He visited the enormous Met Museum and the many record shops stocked with rare jazz LPs. He even spent time with Moondog, the blind, eccentric street artist who stalked 52nd Street in full Viking regalia. Moondog was a familiar sight around Midtown, 
but David in his androgynous clothes were definitely not. People were fascinated by this strange, elegantly dressed young man. Strangers approached him with classic New Yorker aggression, striking up conversations and even touching him as if he were some sort of a zoo animal. One elderly lady stopped him on the street and asked David what animal had been used to make his oversized fur coat. David replied, Teddy Bear. The locals were less amused as his press tour took him through Texas, where a man apparently pulled out a gun and unleashed a torrent of homophobic slurs. David toned things down a bit as he made his way through Chicago and the Midwest, but the man dresses were back in full force as he touched down in Los Angeles. His welcome committee took the form of Rodney Bingenheimer, the legendary L.A. scene maker and so-called mayor of the Sunset Strip. A dedicated Anglophile, he played host to Elton John, Cat Stevens, Rod Stewart, and other British artists beginning to break through in the States. But none prepared him for the sight of David Bowie, who looked more like a silver screen starlet than a rising rock star in his long dress, floppy hat, and bright blonde hair. As they strolled past Hollywood High on Sunset, the teens at recess went wild when they caught a glimpse of David. They had no idea who he was, but obviously he was someone. Rodney Bingenheimer took note. This was definitely different than taking Rod Stewart around. Rodney became David's social secretary, taking him to all the right places and introducing him to all the right people. Fellow expat Elton John, Marlon Brando, even rough-and-ready 50s rocker Gene Vincent. David was thrilled to meet the man behind Beep Apalula, and together they jammed on a pair of David's new songs, Hang On To Yourself and Moon Age Daydream. During the day, Rodney shuttled David around to local radio stations, where he freaked out at least one DJ by touching up his makeup during a commercial break. One night, Rodney threw a party in David's honor, bringing the hip scene to him. David held court in the middle of the room, sitting cross-legged on the floor in his exotic man dress, quietly playing half-completed songs on his acoustic guitar. Guests found him enchanting and funny, but also shy, wide-eyed, and extremely polite, even asking permission to go to the bathroom. Between songs, David scribbled lyrics and ideas on a stack of notebooks and Holiday Inn napkins. A new concept was slowly beginning to take shape in his imagination. America had awoken David to the possibilities of reinventing yourself. It was classic Hollywood. You could be whoever you like. He began talking more and more about an alter ego from Mars. The party guests weren't totally sure what David was on about, but it sounded far out. David outlined the concept to journalist John Mendelssohn, who profiled David in L.A. for his first Rolling Stone feature. My performances have got to be theatrical experiences for me as well as the audience, he said. I don't want to climb out of my fantasies in order to go up on stage. I want to take them on stage with me. What the music says may be serious, but as a medium, it should not be questioned, analyzed, or taken too seriously. I think it should be tarted up, made into a prostitute, a parody of itself. It should be the clown, the Pierrot medium. The music is the mask the message wears. Music is the Pierrot and I, the performer, am the message. David had combined the mime teachings of Lindsay Kemp with the meta-artistic awareness of Andy Warhol and Marshall McLuhan's theories of communication. The result was a Frankenstein's monster, or rather Martian, of his own design. Ziggy Stardust was conceived, but his birth was still a little ways off. Not long after David returned home to Haddon Hall, he experienced a different kind of birth. On May 30th, 1971, he and Angie became parents. They named their son Duncan Zoe Haywood Jones. Haywood after David's late father, and Zoe after the Greek word for life. The delivery was rough on Angie, who suffered a cracked pelvis, blood loss, and exhaustion. Weeks after Zoe's birth, she took a trip to her parents' villa in Italy to recuperate. David said he didn't mind Angie's vacation and wished her well. But later, after their relationship had disintegrated, she couldn't help but wonder if that was the moment it had all gone wrong that David viewed her getaway as an abandonment of their new family. She was, by her own admission, not the maternal type, but the Bowies set about child-proofing Haddon Hall as much as they could. Little Zoe slept in a crib with blue stars painted above it. When work intervened, friends and neighbors took turns nannying the baby, and David's plate was full as he geared up to record a new album. He moved a piano into the room Tony Visconti had recently vacated, 
a bright space that overlooked the back garden of Haddon Hall. It was David's first time that he seriously composed on the instrument, previously preferring the guitar. The battered, out-of-tune upright sounded more like an old honky-tonk pub piano than a Steinway, but it opened up a whole new world of harmonic potential. He would sit there for hours in the spring of 1971, while his fingers searched for the right melodies. I forced myself to become a good songwriter, he said at the time. And I became a good songwriter, but I had no natural talents whatsoever. I made a job of working at getting good. He worked feverishly, producing demos at an impressive clip, and the music was unlike anything he'd ever written. In the past, many of his songs could be derivative, if not contrived, engineered with an eye towards trends in the charts. Now, his music came from pure inspiration, deep in his subconscious. One day, he was awoken in the pre-dawn hours by a tune. It was calling out to him, Wake up, you sleepyhead. Put on some clothes. Get out of bed. He ran to the piano to play it out of him so he could go back to sleep. It started off as a rather off-color ditty called I'd Like a Big Girl with a Couple of Melons, before morphing into something a bit more serious. The lyrics fused an impressive blend of sci-fi influences. Wells, Orwell, Crowley, Ayn Rand. But the refrain, Oh You Pretty Things, that was pure Bowie. The tune for Life on Mars came to David while he was on a bus, heading into town to buy some shoes. Feeling inspiration coming on, he got off at the next stop and ran home to his piano. He finished the song that afternoon, with chords borrowed from an unlikely place. Back in the 60s, Ken Pitt persuaded David to write English lyrics to a French song called Comme d'habitude. David complied, but his efforts were unceremoniously rejected. Singer Paul Anka had better luck, rewriting the tune as My Way, which became a smash for Frank Sinatra and an instant pop standard. Still smarting from the rejection, David initially wrote Life on Mars as a takeoff of the mawkish ballad, not unlike Space Oddity and its playful nod to the Kubrick film. Yet Life on Mars packs more emotion than a mere parody. It's a plea for escape, freedom, and transcendence. David would admit that his songs were like talking to a psychoanalyst. My act, he said, is my couch. The music helped him process the tumult of the last few years. Everything seemed in flux and impermanent. Life was scary and chaotic. Despite the uncertainty, David seemed happier and more optimistic than ever. The birth of his son and his trip to America reignited his sense of the possible. He felt good. He was okay. The feeling was reflected in the title he chose for this new collection of songs, Hunky Dory. He was almost ready to record, but first he needed a band. David had been inactive on stage and in the studio since completing The Man Who Sold the World nearly a year earlier. Without their frontman, hype began to wither, and both Mick Ronson and Woody Woodmansey left London for cheaper lodgings in their hometown of Hull. In May 1971, David tracked them down and persuaded them to return to the fold. For a bassist, they enlisted Trevor Boulder to replace Tony Visconti. To produce, David asked Ken Scott, the engineer on his last two albums. Scott hadn't been impressed with David's work so far, but when he listened to his new demo, he was floored. Scott had spent the last few years working with the Beatles. Now he was getting that feeling again. This guy, he thought, is going to be massive. Recording began in June 1971 at Trident Studios in central London. David's demos had included guitar-driven songs like Moon Age Daydream, Lady Stardust, and Star, but they decided to hold them back in favor of the piano-oriented sounds born in the Haddon Hall music room. They hired Rick Wakeman, a veteran of the Space Oddity session and future member of the band Yes, to add his Baroque keyboard flourishes, played on the same Beckstein piano Paul McCartney had used to record Hey Jude. Mick Ronson resumed his role as unofficial musical director, crafting the orchestrations for Life on Mars, Fill Your Heart, and Quicksand around Wakeman's ornate piano parts. David could sometimes be a hard taskmaster, once shouting, Just play the song right! during a fumbled take of Song for Bob Dylan. But by and large, he was a benevolent dictator, with a knack for motivating his talented bandmate. Go on, do it, Bowie would say after hearing one of Ronson's more out-there ideas. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But have a go! More often than not, it worked out. The album was a breakthrough. David Bowie made the music he heard in his head, an exotic gumbo of his many influences, modern jazz and British music hall, 
avant-garde and radio-friendly pop, folk rock and the Velvet Underground, he quite literally found his voice. Not Anthony Newley's, not Lou Reed's, not Bob Dylan's, but his own. A cockney-tinged baritone that, when provoked, could rise to a crazed, wailing falsetto. For the first time, he'd achieved transcendence on record. For the first time, he wasn't trying to please anyone except himself. An early version of the Hunky Dory cover featured David in full Egyptian pharaoh regalia, a play on the media buzz around the new King Tut exhibit that had taken London by storm. But rather than go for easy hype, David looked inward. The final image, taken by photographer Brian Ward, is how he saw himself. It's a tribute to Hollywood glamour. The ever-androgynous Bowie plays both Bogard and Bacall in a fluffy blouse, pulling his long locks off his gorgeous face and staring wistfully into the distance like Norma Desmond awaiting her close-up. David's time in the spotlight would come soon enough. But first, there was some business to attend to. David wanted out of his record contract with Mercury. Tony DeFries believed he could get more money elsewhere. A label executive flew all the way from Chicago to London to proudly offer David a slightly better deal. DeFries would hear none of it. David will never record for you again, he dramatically informed the jet lag exec. And if you insist on it, we will deliver the biggest piece of crap you've ever heard. Though Mercury could have easily unleashed a legal tornado on David and his haughty manager, they chose not to press the point. David walked. DeFries went right to RCA, which had once been the biggest record company in the world. Hell, it was Elvis's label. DeFries wasn't starstruck in the least. You've had nothing since the 50s, and you missed out on the 60s, he told RCA Brass. But you can own the 70s, because David Bowie's going to remake the decade, just like the Beatles did in the 60s. The bully approach worked, but it would take some time to iron out the finer points, delaying the release of Hunky Dory until the end of the year. In the meantime, David played a handful of gigs, his first real shows in nearly a year. The first, a BBC radio session in June, allowed him to test out his new band, who would soon be dubbed the Spiders from Mars. David played without them a few weeks later on June 23rd for the first official Glastonbury Festival. This wasn't a festival in the modern sense, but a hippie approximation of a medieval fair, with music, dance, poetry, theater, lights, and other more spontaneous entertainment. Tickets were free, and so were the revelers, some 10,000 in number. Many splayed out in the nude across the farm pasture to catch acts like Traffic and Fairport Convention perform atop a giant sheet metal pyramid, a one-tenth replica of the Great Pyramids of Giza. David, Angie, and a small entourage had traveled south from London by train, intending to walk the last few miles to the venue. But their journey was impeded by David's less-than-practical choice of outfit. Ultra-baggy Oxford pants, square-heeled boots, a blue magician's cloak, and a floppy-brimmed Three Musketeers-style hat. That kind of set the tone for the whole experience. He'd been due to perform in the evening, but the show was running overtime. Instead, he climbed atop the wobbly pyramid stage at the very unrock and roll hour of 5 a.m. He started playing for the muddy crowd slumbering in their tents. Alternating between acoustic guitar and electric keyboard, David played 10 songs, many from his work in progress, Hunky Dory. He was accompanied by Mick Ronson and, briefly, a random Scandinavian woman who, in the spirit of the time, had gotten too high and wandered onto the stage to sing with him. The sun began to rise over the hill, warming the cold and groggy festival-goers and bathing David in glorious dawn rays. God does a hell of a light show. As David sang songs like the Supermen, Quicksand, and Kooks, the audience assembled in larger numbers, swaying in time to the music like a great, long-haired ocean. David felt the sea change. Even at this unholy hour, people were listening, and they liked it. He addressed the captivated crowd with touching sincerity. I'll try and be serious for a second, he said. I just want to say that you've given me more pleasure than I've had in a good few months of working. It's really nice to have somebody appreciate me for a change. David debuted a new song that day, Changes, which he'd written just a short time before. It was a song that seemed to define David in the summer of 1971. It was a time of constant transition. He'd experienced his first taste of fame, followed by his rapid return to obscurity. 
the death of his father and the mental decline of his half-brother, changes in his band and his management. He'd become a husband and a father, but there are more changes to come. David Bowie was about to become Ziggy Stardust. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.